0: Hey, welcome back to Dad Conversations, where we spotlight successful, interesting, and normal people who happen to be dads. Today I spoke to Dustin Redazel. Dustin's a great guy. I don't think anyone dislikes Dustin. He's a normal person who's making the world a better place by telling his story of fighting leukemia and personally leading the charge to raise a significant amount for research and treatments. We talked about his life story, his favorite books, his new podcast, and his parenting style. Now, if you enjoy this conversation, please go ahead and subscribe to the show. It would also be very helpful if you can spare a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice. The next episodes will include a UFC fighter, a consultant, a technology salesman, and a healthcare administrator. I'll talk with each of them about their different areas of expertise, their life stories and philosophies, and of course their approach to being dads. All right, it is now time to hear from the one and only Dustin Redazel. Enjoy.
1: Dustin, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, man. I am really excited to have you on. You're an incredible guy, man. You're a successful manager at a large tech company. You battled cancer. You wrote a book. You started and you regularly contribute heavily to a, a nonprofit for leukemia and lymphoma. You're a pro podcaster. Most importantly, you're a husband and father. So pretty incredible bio, man. Thanks for coming on today.
1: Well, I really appreciate it. I'm uh. I'm actually a fan of the podcast here. I haven't caught the last two episodes, but really enjoyed, uh, I think it was episode 34, um, Jeremy Aston. if I'm, I'm getting the name correct. Okay. I thought he was yeah. super interesting. Um, so I love what you're doing here. Feel honored to be part of it. And I appreciate you using the word pro for my podcasting ability. I, I would like, <laughs> you know, aggressively amateur. In my opinion, but I'll take any <laughs> praise I can get. <laughs> um,
0: so I I met you, uh, or maybe I should say I began to know of you one day. I think it was like 2017, maybe. It could have been 2018, I don't know. But we had a really big all hands at work, and it was like the usual yada yada about the numbers and alignment. And then they announced that we got somebody back from battling leukemia and it happened to be you and there's this awesome standing ovation it wasn't one of those uh north korean style standing ovations where you have to clap but (laughs) it was like a legit warm-hearted emotional like you know just a a awesome moment and i was like man this must be a really cool guy so i think that's where our our paths started to cross uh and then we kind of got to know each other a little bit after that but um I, you were kind of, I guess, coming up on one of the one of the many finish lines in life at the time, overcoming cancer and getting back to work. Um, I I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Maybe we could kind of back it up a little bit and start off with like, where did that story begin, and what was it like before and and during your uh, leukemia battle?
1: Yeah, cer certainly. Uh, I mean, a seminal moment in my life, for, for sure. Um, And I remember that welcome back uh, at Cisco and that applause people giving. It's probably the most moving moment of my professional life. Uh, You don't often get the opportunity to see your personal life blend so thoroughly with the concerns of your coworkers. And just an amazing thing. I was really timid about coming back to work, and that that really helped me get back in the swing of life after what was one of the craziest years I've ever experienced. So uh, what happened was I was uh, set to be married on December 3rd, 2016. I'd been engaged for about uh, 14 months at that point, and the Thanksgiving prior, I... I was with a bunch of family and we're driving home and I feel like sick to my stomach. I'm, I'm starting to break into cold sweats and I just think I caught something from one of my nieces or nephews. So anyway, we get home, I'm taking Advil, trying to break the fever and by the time I wake up in the morning, I could barely straighten my legs, uh, searing pain to even walk to the bathroom. And I'm chugging water. I do the typical uh, young guy thing. I was, I was 30, 31 at the time. And just like, I'm just going to shake it off. I'm just going to sleep it off. And my fiance goes out uh, shopping for some last-minute things. You know, we're getting married in six days. She comes back, and she takes one look at me and rushes us to the urgent care. And... Having her in my life probably saved my life because I think I would have just tried to, like, shake it off. Like, let me give it another night's sleep. Uh, I get to the urgent care. They immediately send me to the hospital ER. I'm there for six hours. That hospital rushes me to uh, UNC Hospital in Chapel Hill. And... Uh, at this point it might've been one in the morning and they diagnosed me with acute promyelocytic leukemia. Um, we, (laughs) you you just don't see that coming. You know, my, uh, my fiance sent she sent out a text to, uh, everybody who was due to fly into the wedding and, you know, tried to make light of it. It was like, yeah. Hey, everybody. Um, bad news about the wedding. Dustin got cold feet. Dot dot dot. Next text, uh, and leukemia, and then immediately texted like the actual situation. Right. <laughs> so uh, he went
0: to great lengths to get out of this wedding. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a
1: it's a it's a very complicated con I was running. Uh, but I from checking into that hospital. I didn't leave. I didn't, like, taste fresh air again for 31 days. So we spent seven days in the ICU, and that was the most physically brutal week of my life. Um, All the tests they run. uh, I had some, due to the nature of the disease, your blood isn't healing, like even little flesh wounds. I had a... uh, you know, kind of like an ingrown hair I picked at that was becoming like an abscessed wound that they had to clean out. They they did a bronchoscopy on me, which is where they uh, they can't put you under completely, so you're in like this weird hazy drug state and slide a tube down your throat to get a sample of uh, the tissue and any liquid in your lungs. Um, which it feels like you're it feels like you're having a dream where you're suffocating. Um. The But day seven And I guess this is one of the craziest parts of the story uh, Maybe day six But it's finally December 3rd The day we were supposed to get married And our wedding was scheduled at 3pm We were healthy enough To be moved from the ICU to the oncology suite and at the time they rolled us down to the oncology suite, it was 3.30 p.m., so they were rolling us down the aisle, and instead of marriage, it was like this, this idea that, okay, we graduated from the ICU. We're going to make it. And the thing that Katie and I joke about with people is that we never did premarital counseling. Uh, I, I believe that's an excellent practice. We just didn't get around to it but we have premarital cancer. And I really think it's been the foundation for our relationship that has been better than anything we could have manufactured uh, on our own, as tragic as it was at the time.
0: Yeah. Something about going through hard things that really does strengthen people.
1: There is, in my mind, uh, no, import- no more important thing you can do then create trials for yourself and when you get one that is given to you uh, there's really only two options right you can bemoan it or you can start doing the work to make sense of it and translate it into a positive positive. and that's kind of that's kind of the work of life itself right even even being born is a a random act of chaos. It's like, okay, I'm here now. What am I going to do? Well, you got to make sense of it. And mm. I think we were able to do that with the leukemia. It took us a long time. Uh, I had my years after it were, were really rough. Um, the, the chemo lasted 10 months. It was uh, 80 infusions of arsenic trioxide, which is, you know, arsenic it's rat poison right and in high enough doses it causes oh. uh, it causes heart attacks, uh, coronary failure and so they and give the, it to you in real, oh go ahead sorry I was interrupting you there but um,
0: for idiots like me who don't know a ton about it <clears throat> the idea is they put a lot of poison poisonous like chemicals and substances into your body with the goal of almost killing you but completely killing the um, cancer and then you hopefully bounce back, right?
1: Yeah, no, thanks for clarifying. I've talked about this so many times I forget that it's a novel concept. <laughs> but yeah, they. Uh, the back story is that this type of leukemia, um, if you go back to the late 80s, it had almost a 99% mortality rate like you got it and you just died and the reason being holy crap yeah the reason being is that your it's a transmutation of your white blood cells so of two chromosomes to create white blood cells that don't work so if you catch any sort of disease you have no uh, bodily defenses and so almost anything can kill you um, and so people would just die before they even knew what they were sick or sick of So finally, there was some success treating uh, with arsenic and arsenic kills off uh, your white blood cells. It does almost the same thing um, on its own that uh, the cancer is doing. It's just like wrecking your blood. But what it does is it kills off all the broken white blood cells and it drives your white blood cell count all the way down to zero so you no longer have broken white blood cells because you have no white blood cells. And then the hope is that your body will reboot, and mine did. And so, uh, yeah, they, they give you that drug. You're hooked up to an echocardiogram to make sure your heart doesn't collapse on you, and, and then that's that. And you either bounce back or you don't. And fortunately, after 10 months, they found no trace of the cancer in my bone marrow. And I've been going back for checkups for the last uh, three, four years now. And uh, I've got one last checkup six months from now. And then that'll be it. They're just going to cut me loose. I'll be like a regular human being again. Wow. Wow. And so how, uh,
0: what's the frequency on your checkups now? And then once you get that final one,
1: what will your frequency be? Yeah. When I, when I first started, it was, uh, when I first went into full remission, it was every three months. Then they backed it off to every six months, which is what I do now. And after that last one, that's it. It'll be, I'll no longer require any checkups. It'll be something I just know about, and if I ever get, like, badly sick or recognize the symptoms, but the the uh, the chance of it coming back are very, very slim. There's just not very much recorded history of that for this particular type of leukemia.
0: Oh, that's good.
1: I was going to say, man, even if they're like, yeah, no, no worries about coming back, I'd
0: still be like, you know, I kind of want to come back at least once a year or something, <laughs> you know, just to check,
1: you know, I don't want to... Yeah. Well, you know what's wild about it is they don't know what causes it, right? Like, you get lung cancer, you know. And this is the thing about cancer in general is it really is a genetic injustice. It's just something that happens. And nobody actually deserves it, right? It's, uh, it doesn't happen as a consequence I think we look at things like smoking cigarettes or using uh, tobacco and if you get like mouth cancer lung cancer it's like well you know probably had it coming it's like with something (laughs) I'll let everybody decide that for their individual selves but with something like uh, leukemia and lymphoma it is very tough to pinpoint what possibly could have caused it and in this particular stance it's just like a blip, it's like a misfire in uh, the way your chromosomes create your body's resources. So, it's even though you're in the free and clear, once you've had that experience and you just realize like these things can happen and come out of nowhere, it changes your perspective on your health because your health now almost seems as fortunate as the disease seemed unfortunate if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. that That's interesting because right around that age of, you know, at least speaking for myself, 30, you know, early 30s, you realize, okay, I'm slowly dying now. Like I have peaked and my body is <clears throat> starting to fall apart. You know, first time in my life I can wake up with an injury. And uh, that wasn't there <laughs> the night before, or or you oh, just yeah. everything hurt hurts a little more. And I'm like, no wonder old people are always grumpy because they know that it didn't used to be like this. Um, but but on top of the natural aging progression, you had a a near death experience that was you know painful and drawn out. Like how are you after going through um, both of those, the natural aging and the um, cancer and chemo? Like what's your approach to health and fitness and and like how has that uh, impacted your your overall well-being
1: yeah it's i'm currently probably in the best shape of my life and i played basketball in college and so wow i've had some points where i was in great shape but you know you're there's kind of to your point there's a difference between just being in like hey i'm still young good shape and the good shape you create because you've you've taken fastidious care of the elements that make you healthy so it didn't happen instantly i had to go through a lot of uh you know once the once the chemo wrapped there were some things like during chemo and coming out of it that i i would liken to ptsd in a way. Like you've gone through this, you've gone through this event that has completely rocked you and changed the way that you perceive, you know, the fragility of life and the purpose of your existence. And yet you get back into the world and everybody else is just like they've always been, right? They're getting uh, pissed off because of traffic jams or like it's rainy outside. And it's tough for you to make sense of it all. So I had a period of time where, you know, my, my drinking really ramped up. Like I didn't care about work. I was listless. And I finally got into some group therapy classes that were recommended. I don't remember if it came from leukemia and lymphoma society or from, uh, UNC resources. um, But I started getting into some group therapy, I listened to, (laughs) it's amazing that this had this much of an impact on me, but I really do credit it, uh, David Goggins on the Joe Rogan podcast, and... He's a beast. Right? (laughs) And, like, the two things balance nicely, like, group therapy, like, we were talking about our feelings, like, working through some hard stuff, and... You know, David Goggins is just telling you, you got to callous your mind, like go do hard things. And so I decided, uh, David Goggins has a thing in his book called The Accountability Mirror, and I decided I'm going to run a 1,000 miles this year, and I'm going to run the Chicago Marathon. And all these things started coalescing. I I also listened to uh, an audio book, uh, called Why Sleep Matters, I believe is the title of it. Dr. Matthew Walker, and hmm. I started I started making sure I got eight hours of sleep. I was running twenty five to forty miles a week, uh, and I was taking about three to nine hours of group therapy. And I did that a week, and I did that for about a year and without any real plan for where it was going to take me. And on the other side of that, there's little things along the way, like the the amount of reading I did around like my health and my fitness, and like basically all this desperation that had come from the cancer led me down a lot of new avenues of self-discovery that ended up in what is now, a, I, I feel confident saying, a much more stringent than average regiment that I tend to on a pretty daily basis to make sure that I have health and energy, uh, to appreciate my life with. That's awesome. Um,
0: any sort of high level habits or routines that you want to mention that have been particularly helpful?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't want to bore anybody too much with the details, but uh, I take about four days, uh, Thursday through a Sunday, towards the end of the year. Um, I've got it coming up for this year. And I break my life down in uh, three categories, emotional, intellectual, and physical, And I set up just what can I accomplish this year. And then to make sure that I'm doing that correctly, uh, I set up lead measure metrics. So, you know, if you're talking about something like losing weight as a goal, that's a bad goal because losing weight is a lag measure of things we do proactively. You know, the exercise, the diet. Um, Mm. what kind of food we buy, and then the weight comes off. So I set up lead measures on that, and I make sure that those metrics have a daily application. Um, So for example, if I have a a mileage goal, like when I ran a 1,000 miles a couple years ago, even if I run zero miles... Before I go to bed that night, and this is the accountability mirror portion, like I have all those goals on my mirror uh, in my closet, and even if it's zero miles, then it's a little Tuesday, zero. So I write it down every single day. So I touch what those goals are every day. So uh, this past year, I had three in each category for – My emotional goals, there were things around therapy and screen time. I got my screen time down from four and a half hours a day to two hours and 45 minutes a day, which has been a huge amount of time back. Um, You know, physical goals, I set up a benchmark CrossFit style workout uh, and worked towards getting 10% better on that over the course of the year. Uh, I had a diet goal, which involved intermittent fasting and uh, some aspects of uh plant-based diet, um, not, not completely plant-based. I couldn't give up meat, but, you know, I do that yeah. sort of thing and then make <laughs> sure that I have those metrics in place and I touch it every single day. And uh, for me, you know, some people don't want to get that rigorous, but for me, not to borrow the Jocko Willink line, but the discipline has equaled a ton of freedom. That the, is awesome. Thank you for
0: sharing that by the way I think that's uh it's interesting to get some insight into how the top one percent are getting things done and and you know moving mountains it starts with some of those little things like putting a zero on a sticky note you know that's like a key cog in the whole uh, system so thank you for sharing all about
1: that yeah definitely um, I, I, I well I was just gonna say last thing on this is I it's related to the the we create meaning thing out of life. Um, I really think that anything you start to track and you do for enough days, you'll take a ton of pride in. you know it almost doesn't matter what it is. It's like I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna walk for 10 minutes every day and by time you get to like day 70, and it's like, I've got a 70-day string going here. The way you feel about yourself is transformed. And it, it really doesn't matter what it is. And I've talked to a few people about something in relation to this, whether it's people who uh, you know, are trying to figure out what to do after, after cancer or trying to get in shape. And I don't think enough can be said about it. Like, just pick absolutely anything – and just slightly, that makes your life slightly better, and just do it repeatedly over and over. And it'll teach you everything else you need to know about fixing every avenue of your life. Um, And I am a huge believer in that. Awesome.
0: So I want to hear about some of your nonprofit work. I remember a few years ago that you were fundraising and I'm trying to think if it was running or I think there was also some rowing involved and Mm -hmm. you, you had an offer out there to match any donations that came in which is bold because you're a popular guy had a lot of people donating and I was like man maybe he's uh you know he's got some wealthy family I don't know but um you you're someone who survived cancer not only did it change your life but you're also focused on giving back and helping the future generations who will be coming up with cancer uh can you tell us a little about your work
1: yeah for sure and thanks for asking on this it's uh emotionally it's one of the more important things and yeah it I'm, I'm proud of what it gives back to uh, anybody who runs into a blood cancer down the line or cancer writ large a lot of blood cancer research ends up helping all types of cancers um But that said, anytime you give to a nonprofit organization, it requires a ton of faith, right? You rarely get to meet the people who are actually impacted by what you give. And I'll give an example of that before I talk about what we actually do. Uh, My treatment for leukemia and lymphoma and. Excuse me, back up. My treatment for my leukemia was hugely supported by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And they asked me to write a blog post around everything that happened to me, kind of share my story. Uh, And so I did that. I put that blog post out there. And a woman reached out to me who had gone through the same type of leukemia, but it had happened to her about 12 to 15 years earlier. Uh, And this timeline is pretty crazy. The arsenic treatment starts in China. They get the survival rate up on APL, our type of leukemia, from about 5% up to about 30% using arsenic. That's enough promise to expand the trials and start collaborating with some uh, American research firms by the mid-90s. That's about the time when Leukemia and Lymphoma Society money starts uh, edging into the research. It takes about another 10 years, so we're in the early 2000s before clinical trials are ready uh, around this drug in the States. Well, this woman who reached out to me, her name was Amy, she was given two days to live, and they said, Hey, we've got this, we've got this uh, clinical drug, arsenic trioxide. We'd like to try some things. It wasn't as fine-tuned back then, so she was treated with it for three years. She had... No, I take that back. Two years, she had three heart attacks. And mm-hmm. survived all the heart attacks. The cancer finally went into remission. And she was one of the positive cases that increased the funding on it. Uh, by time the drug gets to me in... 2016 2017 the survival rate for somebody treated with the drug is over 90 percent so it's over 30 years and hundreds of millions of dollars that have been given to cancer research and there's thousands of doctors and nurses probably millions of donors that never understood that their dollar that their time saved my life, right? So when you talk about something like offering a match on uh, our own personal fundraiser, like my wife and I reckoned with all that, and it's like you just got to find a faith that that money is going to do exactly what you hope it will do And you're never going to get a solid answer on that. Like It's not the same as putting your money in an index fund and like, hey, we've got an earmarked 6% plus return, and if we don't get that, then this fund was crappy, and if we get more than that, then this fund was great. You just let it go and and hope for the best. And finding that ability to let go... You know is that is really the emotional benefit that I personally get from engaging with nonprofit work. Uh, you, you take everything a little less seriously. And I'll keep sure. this part shorter because I'm, I'm really filling the space here. Uh, what we do is an event called Row 24, and uh, there's a CrossFit gym here in Raleigh, Sue Esponte, who was kind enough to host us in our first year. And uh, anybody who wants to can come in and get a good rowing machine workout in. Um, But me and a team of guys, and then uh, my buddy Tommy, who uh, is also my uh, podcast co-host, he got a team of guys together. And we just kept rowing machines going for 24 hours, uh, raising money around that effort. And after expenses, we ended up raising about $15,000. Um, which we felt awesome about for a, you know, generating a nonprofit event out of nowhere. Um, and unfortunately, couldn't pull it off in a COVID environment this year, but are definitely looking forward to uh, finding a way to get that back going again in 2021, you know, fingers crossed on uh, what society is going to look like at that point. But in the meantime, what we do, uh, ongoing is called charity miles. And that's the running aspect you mentioned. This is an app on your phone, uh, that by GPS, uh, tracks your running. So you just hit start before you run, you hit stop when you're finished and it donates 25 cents a mile to the charity that you designate. Le- leukemia and lymphoma society is one on there. So we have a team that's, uh, up over a hundred runners. We've ran over 60,000 miles, um, as a team. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's been an awesome effort that people have really gotten around. So, uh, and I feel like it kind of reflects, you know, something of my experience, like you're, you, you do something hard, you make yourself better and you benefit, um, a worthwhile organization while doing it. So those are the two, the two prime things we try to get into on a regular basis.
0: That's really cool, man. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, it, it's interesting as you were talking about the, the match, it reminded me of, um, in a faith context, you know, a lot of people of faith will say, Hey, God has given me everything. So everything that I have is his, you know, um, and then Mm -hmm. you're from your perspective it's like hey with uh without the research and and donations and funding that's gone before me you wouldn't be alive and so you don't mind pitching in a sizable chunk of your income to go towards giving back which is really commendable man i think that's a very very um respectable
1: yeah and i i I appreciate that and I do maybe it doesn't work this way for everybody but it definitely works this way for us it's one of those things where every time before you cut a check like that you're thinking about all the other things you could spend the money on you're thinking about uh maybe maybe your mortgage creeps into your mind uh And the moment you let it go, all those desires that you creep up, because, you know, what is wanting something uh, besides a contract with yourself to be unhappy until you get what you want, right? That's just desire. And you're basically breaking all that unhappiness with those other things the money could do because you've resolved an issue and you've given it to something that you have consciously decided is more important than your own desires so i think it's a really good practice in general to have a giving practice as part of your emotional health and part of your totally agree you know having a healthy relationship to your money and your income
0: so you've also Written a book and a podcast. You have a podcast uh, by the same name of uh, Cheeto Dust. Can you tell me a little about why you chose that name? What's uh, What's it about? And uh, anything else we should know about it?
1: <laughs> yeah the uh, the Cheeto Dust moniker it comes from a uh, a story within the book where I. <laughs> It's a little bit of an embarrassing story, but I say it in the book. I might as well say it here. Um, I was single uh, 26 years old, maybe, at the time. I was really overweight. I was about, uh, about 60, 50, 60 pounds heavier than I am currently. And like I'm a pretty big guy. I'm 6'4", about 210 right now, so you know i was carrying about 270 pounds it's just not wow. healthy uh and i i basically was eating uh cheetos and watching netflix and drinking alone in my apartment and uh i you know Uh, maybe I'll try to make this as, as clean as possible. I switched over to some, a portion of the internet, which was a little bit lewd. I don't really have a clear memory of it because I was pretty close to a, uh, a blackout level of, of drinking. And, you know, I wake up the next morning and I'd passed out on my couch. I have Cheeto dusts on, uh, all over my hands and portions of my body. And I get into the shower, and I just had, like, a reckoning of... It's like, as I'm seeing it, the water pour it down, it looks like, like, uh, almost like blood running down my body. And I just... I just thought, like, you have got to get it together, man. And... <laughs> There wasn't anything so obviously wrong with my life. I just, I'd graduated uh, during the 2008 housing crisis. It was really tough to get a job, and you know, one thing leads to a next, and I find myself in a career where I'm making 175 cold calls a day. Uh, I'm, I'm running out of money usually with like four or five days left in the month and I'm eating peanut butter and crackers or Cheetos just to like get enough calories. Um, (laughs) and you know, the rest of the paycheck is like going to self-medication and, and I think it was a reflection of something that a lot of millennials were kind of going through at the time. It was a, it was a fairly tough time to be a young person, people my age, everyone I knew had tons of student loan debt. The job market wasn't fantastic. There wasn't a lot of optimism from, uh, you know, the generation above us about the type of people we were. And yet I felt like I had a ton of potential. I felt like a lot of people around me had a ton of potential. And the thing I'd always felt driven to do was right. So I started writing this book, Cheeto Dust, about the lives of millennials, you know, and I I tried to break it down as some digestible sections uh, around our relationships with our health, with family, with finance, with the job market, and it ended up being the most self-educational project I had ever worked on. And it kind of lit a fire of curiosity under me. I was about 80% finished with it when I got diagnosed with cancer. Finished it while doing my chemo. And uh, found like my curiosity around the topics I researched in order to write it to be so much so that I wanted to start a podcast just like talking to people about the stuff that was now on my mind that hadn't been on my mind before. Um, and ultimately, it, I came away feeling really optimistic. And a little bit about my life, a little bit about, like, my generation, but mostly about where the world was going, and I think that's a little bit of the power of education. It's a little bit of the power of craft. If you have something you work really hard on and can complete a project, uh, but that's where the name Cheeto Dust came from. That's that's what the book is about. It's about millennials finding direction, because that's what I was doing at the time. Um, and you know, they say you write what you need to read, and I guess that's what I needed to hear back then.
0: Hmm. That's cool, man. Thanks for an uh, interesting story and, and a great topic, too, because I can totally relate to uh, what you're saying about millennials. I think as a as a millennial, I get defensive when people are always dumping on our generation, you know, um, <laughs> and anyway, what you mentioned it was very educational and enlightening uh, as you were reaching out and learning and and wrapping up the book, are there any particular lessons or uh, messages that you want to share that you've found about the that particular generation and um, how they
1: interact with the world? I think the I think the primary one um, probably has to do and this is almost cliched, but it probably has to do with social media and the internet. And I think that millennials are actually not very different from the generations that preceded us or the generations that are coming after us. That the reason we're a maligned generation is because neither side of we're a bridge to what the internet is doing to the way that we find our people you know the your life is so defined by the context of the people you put around you and for those older than us that was very often geographic it had to do with the the people that sat nearby you at work, the town you grew up in. Um, And for the people that are coming after us, that's going to be very much interest-oriented. You can find your people anywhere in the world. Uh, You exist almost atemporally, like you interact with the platforms when you get up and when you go to bed. And millennials kind of fall, you're either old school or you're new school. Like people born like in 1983... You'll, you'll hear them get aggravated that they're called millennials. You know? Yeah. They don't see yeah. themselves that way. And people who were born on the back end, like 98, they don't think that anybody from 1983 understands what it's like to be them. So yeah. I just think that, uh, I just think that more than anything, we're, after thinking about it for a long time and writing through it, I think we're facing the same problems that everyone's always faced, which is trying to connect with the world around us. And the primary tool for connection in the modern world was evolving as we were the young generation uh, being criticized for all its faults. So, you know, if you hear people bashing millennials, like give them a break. They just don't understand. It's fine. Nice. Well, let's uh,
0: on the on the topic of uh, learning about the world and, and uh, childhood, and let's let's hear about your individual story. You know, tell me where did you grow up?
1: What type of kid were you? And what
0: were some of your interests?
1: Sure, man. I uh, grew up just south of Kansas City, Overland Park, Kansas. Um, I was homeschooled as a kid uh, up until about eighth grade and gosh I guess I don't think about childhood too often but I think life was pretty much uh, I would spend a lot of solitary time with other kids at school uh, either reading or uh, making up imaginary games like we had a a nice expanse of wooded area go down to the woods and just kind of make up games and playing. And then as soon as uh, kids got home from school, we had a bunch of boys in kind of the same age category. And then it was just whatever the sport of the season was, roller hockey, basketball, uh, tackle football out in the front yard, wiffle ball in the summers. Um, Just a ton of sports with those guys. And It's interesting the the block we grew up on you know my older brother was he ended up being an all-american rugby player at the Air Force Academy Uh, Wow the two boys across the street they ended up playing uh, d2 college football kid up the road played uh, college baseball and then two more boys across the street ended up playing soccer in college so we just kind of like lucked into this little area where everybody got together and was really competitive Um, and we just spent a ton of time that way. That's
0: cool. Hey, out of curiosity, grow as someone who was homeschooled all the way through eighth grade, do you have a plan, uh, or an idea of what you want to do as your kids grow up? Can you repeat that? Sean, you broke up a little bit. Yep. Do you have a plan for, uh, homeschooling your kids as well?
1: I don't uh, the main reason being I like my job I like what I do so I don't have the the bandwidth and you know my wife's kind of in the same boat as me but I do think there's a ton of benefit to homeschooling and I, I definitely wouldn't shut the door on it if either she or I felt differently um, I I s- I'm probably too hard on homeschooling because since that was my experience, I just see where some things fell short. It was a very difficult transition for sure. me into middle school and high school. Um, so much anxiety with social interaction for a couple of years, and I, f- I figured it out, right? But I think if I hadn't been a decent athlete, I think sports kind of saved me in that regard. Like, it's, uh, it builds an automatic friendship circle. It, it gives you a medium to interact with other people. If it wasn't for that, I, I just had so much anxiety in the transition that that portion of it kind of intimidates me. But also, I know they're doing a lot better things around the social aspect of homeschool these days. So it's really evolved a long way. But currently, currently no plans, but I... I was a huge fan of the education aspect.
0: Hey, I can assure you as someone who is in public school all the way through that uh, there's plenty of anxiety around socializing and uh, certainly in middle school <laughs> and high school. I was <laughs> I was always terrifying and trying to fit in and uh, I, I think every you know probably uh, not an unusual experience.
1: Yeah, I'm probably um, attributing it to the wrong things.
0: So uh, what was your first job? Did you have any like part-time jobs as a teenager or in college?
1: Yeah, I've had a job since I was seven, uh, being homeschooled. <laughs> no. Yeah, being homeschooled like you're around. So I I was walking the neighbor's dogs, had a, had a pretty solid list of, uh, I don't know, clients, I guess. But then by the time uh, I did have a really interesting what I would – actually count as my first job is pretty interesting um i had a neighbor who put me and my brother in contact with someone they knew nearby who was a retired engineer who held a patent on uh, creating gold coronary stents so heart stents manufactured out of gold so for those who don't know, a heart stent is like a little patterned piece of tubing that they put inside uh, an artery after, uh, after surgery to help strengthen it, to keep it from collapsing. And they were made out of stainless steel at the time. This would have been the late 90s, right around 2000. Uh, and the idea is that gold is a more naturally uh, occurring substance and it's more biocompatible. The body won't reject it as readily as it will stainless steel. But the problem is that gold is a soft metal. So he'd done a ton of engineering work trying to build a pattern, uh, improving it's, uh, essentially it's, uh, I'm, I'm losing the word here for stamina for a structure. That, that it would last that it wouldn't uh, break down or collapse endurance or uh, yeah something so yeah. there's there's a right word for this it's just not coming to me at the time but uh we i'm the, I'm the last he, guy to come to
0: when you're struggling with vocabulary
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we need a we need a thesaurus here uh but essentially we were like lab assistants for him he had built out the process of how to build these things and then we were just actually building them for them so we did two hours every day after school a longer day on saturday on the weekend and uh ten dollars an hour um when when you're that age for something that sounds pretty cool and was pretty cool uh not bad at all so i did that yeah i did that all the way through high school
0: ten dollars an hour is balling money man
1: when we grew up that's really good (laughs) i know (laughs) Yeah, if uh, if I could have ever gotten, if I could have ever gotten dates, I could have had great dates. But the money just <laughs> kind of sat there. I don't even know what I spent it on. You know, you're a kid, gas, I guess. Yeah.
0: So uh, tell me a little about your your father. Uh, what's one thing that he nailed as a father? And if you have any stories that come to mind, I'd love to hear them.
1: Yeah. Uh... First and foremost, I'd say, like, I have a great dad, and now that, you know, I have a a son who's going to be turning two in a month or so, and now that I kind of understand that experience, like, I appreciate him so much more than I did growing up. Uh, He was my baseball coach um, all the way up through high school, or to high school, and Really, we connected a lot, like a lot of fathers and sons, through sports. Like, he had played ball through college, and uh, he spent a lot of time with us that way. And he was a traveling salesman, um, sold paper promotional products, and, you know, things like uh, sticky notes and paper cubes and scratch pads, uh, branded for companies. And... Mm -hmm. He uh, he just got really good at that, which is another thing I appreciate. He ended up becoming like a, a vice president of sales in his company. Um, you know, obviously, no one sets out to do work like that, so it's it's diligence and attention to craft when when you find yourself in that arena and it's like I'm going to make this work, what it is, um, right? And he was probably traveling two to three weeks a month, but I don't have any memory of him not being around, which is kind of crazy and says something for about, about how engaged he was when he was home. Like he never missed our games or anything on the weekend. He wasn't, he didn't lead like an active social life outside of his family. It was kind of, He had his time prioritized very neatly. Um, And I guess just to share a story that stands out, and I think this is probably, you know, I've revisited this memory so much, I don't know how much of it I've made up versus how much of it was exactly how it happened, but this is the way it (laughs) stuck with me. Us boys being homeschooled, I must have been like eight, nine years old at the time we had just been giving my mom hell all day long and finally when my dad gets home he's taking us into the other room and hey say what you will about spankings it's the way we did it then and it it seemed effective from my perspective so he takes (laughs) us into the other room for a spanking and uh, after we get our three paddles each you know, he sits us down and uh, and it's me, my older brother, my little brother. And he says something to the effect of, boys, I love you more than my own life. But that's not even close to how much I love your mother. And now as a father, I don't know that that was a true statement, right? Like splitting those hairs, But it was what we needed to hear as boys was that there was no confusion about where dad's loyalties lied. Like, he was on my mom's team all the way. And, you know, now that I'm older, like, I see their relationship. And, that like, they have a true friendship. They are each other's best friends. They do their best. They're into house flipping now and uh, in his, I guess, pseudo-retirement. That's what they enjoy doing, and they, they're in business together, spend all their time together. And I think modeling that marriage was pivotal for us. Uh, and it, you don't realize how much that sinks in when you're a kid, but your ideas about the way you're going to be with your own spouse when you're older like so much of that is being built for you at that young age. And I couldn't be more grateful for his commitment to her.
0: That's amazing,
1: man. He sounds like an awesome dad. Uh,
0: yeah, <laughs> that's a really cool story.
1: I mean, I'm a fan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. What is the book or books you've given most as a gift? And uh, if you're not a book gift giver, then what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life?
1: Yeah, uh, the book I've given the most, but probably only five or six times, it's called The Nix. It's by a writer named Nathan Hill. Uh, Nix is spelled N-I-X, and it's my favorite piece of fiction I've read as an adult. Um, it's like a 650-page doorstopper. That is about Mm. all sorts of things But primarily it's a family saga That uh, plays from the 60s to modern day And it's kind of about a boy Trying to understand who his mother was And at the same time Going through his own self-discovery But it is wildly entertaining uh, To try to even explain all the topics it touches on Would be folly but I can't recommend it enough. It's unbelievable. And then uh, wow. also on the nonfiction side, I find myself giving Ryan holidays. Uh, you know, Ego is the Enemy, The Obstacle is the Way, and Stillness is the Key. Like a book from that trilogy, I find myself giving those out pretty frequently too.
0: That sounds cool. So the Knicks and Ryan, what was his last name? Holiday. Ryan Holiday. Cool. We'll have to check that out. Um, all right. Little question that I thought of that I think is very important. Um, not talked about enough. And so I'm adding it in to my uh, list of questions. Okay. Where's the best – what's the best fast food restaurant, man? When you need to eat something, like, quickly, you're on the road. What's the – like, do you have a top three or a top five, like, fast food restaurants in your opinion?
1: Man, ah you know it's funny i i'm I'm gonna be embarrassed by this i always try to avoid the fast food if i can right like i think the action of picking even though it's barely better picking like a chipotle or a salad place like you've you've made a decision for good (laughs) so that's better yeah
0: let's call chipotles include i would say um well we can include like fast casual Um, I would say Chipotle is totally fair game and they are, um, spoiler alert for anyone who cares about my list. They'd be certainly top two, but what's your,
1: yeah, it's Chipotle. Uh, Chipotle is easily the one I go to the most. And then we have nearby us, uh, a salad place called chopped, which is a fast casual, like shake your salad together. Um, but if I'm on the road and I do get tempted, like I still get nostalgia uh, from eating anything at McDonald's. So I still love it.
0: No one wants to talk about it, but like, there's it's no way they are selling <laughs> so many burgers <laughs> without people going there. Yeah. Um, what is a purchase, um, of a hundred dollars or less that has most positively impacted your life in the last six to 12 months?
1: Yeah, it's not even a purchase, so maybe this doesn't count. Um, but I've heard you ask this question on other podcasts, and I've so I, it's been in my head. It's an app called Libby. Have you heard of this? No. Libby is it's kind of like Audible and Kindle rolled into one, but what it does is it just uses your local library. So you need a library card. And then you can download audiobooks or checkout books from the library for free. You don't have to go anywhere. And you just have them right there on your phone. And when you're... Is it available? Borrow. If it's not, I put it on hold and they notify you when it is. And then you just have it. And when you're done listening to it or reading it, you hit return and it goes back. So you get access to everything that your local library provides uh, completely free. And the amount of reading that allowed me to do guilt-free, absolutely incredible. And I bet you I have listened to 40, probably 40 audio books this year on the Libby app. And it's just opened my, my world up to a ton of information that otherwise I just wouldn't have had you know I'm, I'm i'm too cheap i would have just waited for my next audible.com credit to become available
0: <laughs> yeah yeah you No, know, libraries are such a good resource and i love that cuz it's one one interface that you have and it can work on any uh, they've got some kind of api or whatever for every um, library system so that's you know if you're in a different you move to a new place you can still have the same f- functionality Wh- mm-hmm. um how
1: do they make money what What's their business model? I have no idea. I don't get served any ads, so so I, the question is
0: where your where is your data going and why is it valuable?
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And let me tell you, that's that is one battle I have just decided I'm out on. If somebody is capitalizing on Dustin Rhodes' personal data, I'm a sucker. They got me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: I get. It. I totally get it. Um, if you could have a giant billboard anywhere in the world with anything on it, what would it say and why?
1: I'm tempted. Yeah, I'll just go with this. It's uh, a. S- a statement that has kind of changed my life and I think is really important um, happiness is about frequency not intensity and I think if you can really understand that sentence it changes your life that's cool
0: Anything you want to elaborate on with that?
1: Yeah, I I, I can. Uh, it's similar to what I was saying around the the metrics on a mirror, and if you do the same thing, um, like whatever you decide to set is your very personal parameters for what success means, then touching that every single day and building a strong routine is a very satisfying way to live a life. And if you're chasing, you know, you hear people like working for the weekends, you know, if you're chasing highs, well, you're going to hate the majority of your life. If you're Mm. thinking that if I work really hard for 30 years and when I'm retired, life's just going to be 20 years of vacation (laughs) well you've lost 30 years right so how do I create frequency and make happiness about that instead of trying to chase the big intense holy cow that was the best night ever feeling yeah and if you can do that you're that's happiness not the other thing
0: Thank you for sharing that. I think there is a lot of wisdom in that. And um, it's a good explanation there. For sure. So speaking of retirement, um, when it comes to retirement investing, do you have a um, high level formula that you've found works best for you? you? Do you tend to go with stocks or index funds and ETFs? Do you like real estate or... Do you have any uh, alternative investments that have been helpful for you? What's the uh, the Dustin
1: high level formula on saving (laughs) for the long run? We're pretty vanilla. Uh, You know, most of it's get your full company match, get your full company stock purchase program. Um, Make sure that you crush your expense list down to the minimum so that you can maximize those other things. I believe in index funds and a long range approach. Uh, I don't do anything, I don't do anything wild. I, you know, I've looked into things like cryptocurrency and, uh, you know, I've got, uh, one of my closest friends is, uh, huge into real estate. Like I'm a believer in other aspects, but, um, I think some of the time it would take for me. So, Pretty much index funds. We have one rental home. Um, and outside of that, I guess if, if I was trying to provide any sort of advice on the topic, my high-level formula is just spousal communication and getting that on point. Uh, me and my wife, keep <laughs> a we keep a spreadsheet that we update together biweekly she has her portion she updates i have my portion i update but it's the same spreadsheet we're both on it and uh having that sort of cadence kind of forces a constant understanding of where everything is um i'm not a believer in like shadow accounts and and separate accounts uh i i believe in being all in as as a family and I would say that's the most important thing, you know, left to a, left to my own devices. I will, I can spend on some pretty stupid stuff and and ultimately like spending money is kind of a rebound effect, right? You're happy for a little bit, but then, you know, that's been met and you're, you're going to have to scratch that itch again. So I like having an accountability partner on the, on the topic as well.
0: It's a good point, And that ties in perfectly with the, uh, happiness through
1: frequency. Bingo. <laughs> good. It's nice when you could see those three lines.
0: Yeah. And, and I, I think that's a good point because communication is such a big deal and I can't, I, I don't understand how people have separate accounts and all that. I'm like, if you're in it for the long run, I mean, it's all wide open, uh, together, you know? So, plus it's like for my, sure. my, my wife's a stay at home mom. And, um, I mean, with six kids and I got the, um, the easy job, you know, like there's no, she works way harder than I do. And, yeah. There's and, no question um, about that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, really, it's, uh, let's be honest. It's her money, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, all right. What is something you've changed your mind on in the last five years? Um,
1: I would say, uh, It's yeah, this is always a tough one. Probably that the pursuit of happiness is a viable strategy, or that happiness is real. I don't know totally the way to say that. I used to have a pretty pessimistic idea about happiness, that it was kind of a trap. Uh, to go into that happiness is about frequency, not intensity idea— Because I would chase things intense that were about intensity, things that I got excited for, and then I'd spend more of my life kind of depressed. And it took me, I I came around to this idea that like happiness was a trap. Like chasing it is ultimately not a good strategy for creating a successful life. But now that I'm in a little bit better control of my habits and routines. Uh, I see happiness as something that I can manufacture that desire is actually a skill. You can control the amount that you create and the amount that you satisfy and like nailing that down does actually lead to just like a general rising of the mood all the time. Like you just, you have more energy, you have more interest you can pay more attention to what's in front of you. And mm-hmm. so I, I think believing in happiness is something that is pretty recent to me. And I'm no longer cynical about that. Yeah, I, I really do think that even though it took me a while to come around to, that that is a viable way to create a life is to try to be happy. Cool.
0: So, uh, tell me a little about your family. No, you know, you've got a, a wife and a child, uh, and, and maybe a favorite vacation you've taken. So, and that could be with just you and your wife or a entire family vacation.
1: Yeah. Um, I'll just stick to one of these. Um, we've, we've taken some great vacations, but there's one we do routinely and, uh, my wife's family owns a little river house. It's a, it's a small thing on the, on the gulf down in Florida. And it's on a little river inlet, and you can go out into the gulf and go scalloping and fishing. And once a year, all of us will swarm on it, the majority of us sleeping on sleeping bags on the floor. Um, there's just not enough beds and couches. And we always say it's not a vacation, it's a family adventure. And that's the right way to look (laughs) at that. And once a year, it's the time we see everybody. And once you get your mind around like, hey, you're not here to relax, like you're going to be busy all day, it's going to be hectic, and you're going to leave with sunburns and full bellies, Uh, it's just an awesome time of rejuvenation and catching up. And I love that we have that cadence, even though, in the description alone, it'll never be as cool as, like, going to Thailand or Hawaii, right? But we love it. Cool.
0: That sounds like one where you want to schedule a day or two of uh, downtime before you get back to work after taking that trip. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you need you need at least a 24-hour rebate. Yeah. yeah. And uh, another thing I feel like with related to aging, but... Uh, I'm so much more picky about where and how much I sleep nowadays because oh, yeah. it's rough. I just, the idea of being in a, uh, a house with a ton of other people and somebody's going to be snoring. Some kids going to wake up and so, you know, just like,
1: ah. Oh yeah. I have to, uh, when we're there, I have to get up early to like go for a run and do some stretching just to like recover from the night's sleep. Mm. What's something
0: that you wish new dads or future dads understood about what they're
1: getting into? I think the thing that's come to me has been around curiosity. Um, I've said so many times to my wife that I think my job as a dad, like beyond the the basics, right? Creating stability and, and safety. But I think, my biggest job is to find everything interesting. Right. Is whatever my son is into and he's not even two, it can be the most mundane stuff. Like I'm going to read the trucks and diggers book for the 300th time. I've got to (laughs) summon up the energy and find it interesting. And when we're walking around and he's pointing at things to be into what they are, to be explaining them. And as he gets older, if he's into things that I'm not naturally passionate about, well, I'm the adult here. I, I don't want to crush his curiosity. I can be the one who finds something interesting about, you know, playing the trumpet. Like there's gotta be some cool stuff about that. Right? Like I can get into it. Yeah. So I, I think that, I think that so much about being, uh, having an enjoyable life is in the ability to generate curiosity and in the more is caught than taught model of, of growing as a child. I think trying to be interested in everything is the ticket. You know, I'm, I'm still a young parent. We'll see how it plays out, but (laughs) that's my strategy. (laughs) Uh, I, I think your logic
0: is sound on that. Um, what, and you've been married for, um, what I guess coming up on four years now. Um, what's something that you're doing better as a husband now than maybe
1: a couple years ago? Ooh, man, the, the review, um, <laughs> You know, I'll say all the things we talked about in the recovery about, like, getting my head around uh, therapy and, like, drinking less, exercising more, some self-discovery. Uh, I think that all of that has granted stability for my wife. She can trust me in a way that is much deeper and not just like, trust me. And like, I'm going to tell her the truth, but like she knows I'm going to do well at my job. Right. Uh, she knows that I'm going to have energy. Like I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be on the couch watching a ball game till 12, 1 a.m., uh, and going to be all tired the next morning. Like I'm going to get to bed on time. I'm going to pop up. I'm going to take care of Walter and what he needs. Like I'm just a reliable person in a way that I wasn't before. And that makes me more proud of who I am. And I think it's been great for us. Well, you just, uh, let me know
0: that I'm not going to encourage my wife to listen to this episode. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> hey, sports! You look
0: bad over here, man. Uh,
1: <laughs> look, man, you got six kids. You need more rest than me. <laughs> yeah,
0: my wife does too. Uh, that's the thing. Yeah, and by the way, Walter, good good choice on the uh, on the name there.
1: Oh, thank you. For, yeah, he's named after uh, it's my my grandpa's middle name, who uh, did the excellent job of raising the father I mentioned before. That's right.
0: That is cool. And yeah, I, Sean. Just in case ahead. you
1: hear anything in the background, uh, I have just taken over little Walter' responsibility, so he is sitting on my lap right now. Good man. <laughs> so um, if yeah, my, if anything I gets also, too nuts, we might need to to wrap shortly. But just wanted to give you a heads up or or take a break. One of the two.
0: Okay. Cool. Well, we I think we can uh, we can start wrapping up. Are you got for like. Couple more questions to uh, finish out.
1: Yeah, let's uh, let's do five more minutes, and yeah, okay. my bladder's about to explode, anyways. Too, if I'm being honest.
0: Um, as you look towards the future, what's one thing you're optimistic
1: about? Uh, you know, I think this might be a weird thing to to put optimism around. Um, because I feel like a lot of people are saying the opposite. But I think the emotional health of young people. It's like there's some scary things about social media. And you hear like the way that's impacting like young girls and things like that. But I, and this is something I came across when writing Cheeto Dust. I think the internet and social media has exposed a lot of our weaknesses as a culture. You know, when you see things like the George Floyd incident, like that's writ large, and it really helps us work on uh, racial tensions in the country. But the same thing is true with a lot of our emotional frailty. And I think we're just now beginning to understand people in a way that was difficult to access in decades prior. And I know for me, when I talk about things like therapy... (laughs) you know I'm I'm from a male centric midwestern family you know 20 years ago therapy would have been for a weak person and now people start to see you as a strong person for admitting that that is like a a portion of your life you're working on and I'm just I'm so excited for that freedom of self discovery that's going to be available to the next generation and the dividends that that will pay for society at large, I think, is it's almost impossible to project, but I think it's going to be huge.
0: That's a good point, because yeah, like growing up, you hear someone's in therapy, you're like, "Oh, damn, what the hell's wrong with them?" Like, yes. sorry <laughs> to hear that. You know, <laughs> are, yeah, I, um,
1: I didn't know they were crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, that's good. Not not the case anymore. I think that I agree with you. That's a great point. Um. Hey, what's uh any any good shows or podcasts that you want to plug before we let you go?
1: Well, I think I plug the, uh, you know, the, whenever people ask me about podcasts, I try to give them individual episodes. So for me, uh, you know, Joe Rogan's great for a reason. You can't dip into whatever fifteen hundred episodes, whatever he has. But for me, the top ones on there, I tell people listen to Matthew Walker jordan peterson or david goggins on rogan like whatever you might think about those individuals uh, like a guy like jordan peterson the two hours he does on his first joe rogan podcast it granted me like a clarity of thought that and a direction for how to think uh (laughs) that i don't know it was legitimately life-changing for me and i already mentioned the impact David Goggins had, and then uh, also Raval Navakant on Tim Ferriss. I dropped. That was a uh, good one. Yeah, yeah. I've dropped a couple of his quotes in our conversation here. I'm sure, because similarly, he had such an impact on me uh, when I heard it. The uh, the desire is a contract you make with yourself to be unhappy until you get what you want, like. Everyone knows that, but to hear it articulated, grants you a control on how you desire things and what you do with your wants. That was so pivotal to me. So, and he's got so much of that stuff. Like, you can't listen to that podcast and not not be enriched. Mm. And then totally. I, you know, TV. I would. I'll just say this about TV. Uh, I think TV is about following your bliss you know, limit it. I, I try to limit myself to four nights a week, but once you're, once you're embracing that, just watch what you love. You know, there's better places for education. Um, so just whatever, whatever speaks to you, whatever is art. Mad men is my favorite TV show of all time, but teach the right.
0: Cool. Love that, man. Yeah. I just um, yesterday just sent a link to a couple of friends of mine where Jordan Peterson was on his daughter's podcast with uh, Coleman Hughes, who's a brilliant young guy. Uh, and they had a fascinating conversation that I sent to a few friends to
1: get their thoughts on it. But um, good. I... Oh, the last thing I would say, my, my co-host would be upset with me if I didn't. Uh, we have started a new podcast that is about like growth through conversation, myself and Tommy Cooksey. It's called "Looks mm. Like We're Lost," so check that out. Looks,
0: looks like we're lost, and that one is uh, coming out soon. Is it already
1: out? What's this, what? already out? We're two episodes in, releasing the third episode this uh, this week. Nice. Looks like we're lost podcast. I I've just got to get that plug in there, uh, because I I do think from talking from listening to your podcast. Uh, there's a lot of crossover appeal. Um, and if you've enjoyed this conversation at all if you're you're listening to me talk, uh, a lot of the stuff that you get into is stuff Tommy and I try to get into a little bit deeper and and talk to our own guests about. so
0: cool. So uh, one more time, let us know like where people can reach you. So mention your your podcasts, um your book, your Website, uh, your charity fundraising efforts. Um, l- remind us one more time before we go.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's at Dustin Redazel on almost everything. Whether Instagram's really about the only social media I use regularly. Um, but at Dustin, Rad- there's there's not many Dustin Redazels in the country. I think there's one other. <laughs> so I'm I'm sure you're probably in the same you si- you situation. beat him to the punch. <laughs> yeah so uh, but yeah, you can find Cheeto dust on Amazon um if you just search for Cheeto dust in the search bar, it's either the book or the the big bag of flavor seasoning. pick the book and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and besides that um yeah i I don't really have much of an agenda i'll I'll say that all proceeds from the book. I, I donate them to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society um, so if that influences your decision at all you know know that the, the book goes to a great cause for sure that's
0: why I was really excited to have you on you're a good dude You're you care about giving back you've figured out a lot of important things in life and that's a message that should be spotlighted so thanks for coming on man it's been a blast to talk with you
1: Dude, it was a pleasure. I enjoyed it. This is this is a ton of fun. Thanks a lot. All right,
0: man. Have a great one.
1: You too. Talk to you later.
0: Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the show, please consider telling someone about the podcast. You could talk to someone or send a text message. You could even fold them a sweet origami swan that has dad conversations written inside it. Or you could share an episode on social media. Maybe even write a review of the podcast on your podcasting app. If you think the podcast sucks, that's totally cool. And I want to know why. Please send me any constructive criticism, such as a new question you'd like me to ask, or a request to stop saying um... Also, feel free to send unconstructive hate mail or whatever's on your mind. You can find me at Sean Redvansky on LinkedIn or DM Dad Conversations on Twitter. Whatever you do, I hope you have a great day.